Hi there. Welcome to the Pocket Contemplative. I'm Dave Smelser. This week, we'll look at the aspect of contemplative spirituality called mindfulness, a big category to be sure, especially for Western contemplatives. As I'll mention, I've been marveling recently at how helpful mindfulness has been for me, how it's mostly diffused some profound stresses. And I found myself looking for a thoughtful voice who could help me go even a bit further into understanding exactly why it was proving so helpful, and about what that teaches me about Jesus and the Bible, subjects I care a lot about. And I found that helpful voice in a woman named Irene Craigle, a clinical psychologist who directs a counseling and wellness center at Calvin University in Michigan, and who wrote a book I really enjoyed and will shortly tell you a bit about called The Mindful Christian, Cultivating a Life of Intentionality, Openness, and Faith. I'm actually hoping Dr. Craigle will join the podcast for an interview sometime soon. In any case, I hope you'll enjoy this integration of mindfulness and Christianity as much as I have. Before we get started, just to mention that we do host three really fun online groups each week on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, in which people from around the U.S. and beyond get some brief coaching, often from me, around the sort of spirituality we talk about here. And then many of whom also connect in regular breakout groups to make friends around this. One of my breakout groups recently, for instance, met in person in Los Angeles, and that was one of my great recent pleasures. In any case, if that sounds like something you'd enjoy checking out, you can contact us at connect at journey-on.net for login information, and you can just go to the journey-on.net site to learn more about the groups as well. And I'm also starting to host some broad-ranging conversations about the big spiritual and cultural questions we're all in the middle of. It's happening on a mailing list you can sign yourself up for if you'd like. To do that, and we'll put this in the show notes as well, you've got to go to a different website, our parent organization's website, blueoceanfaith.org, blueoceanfaith.org. Then you would click the Connect drop-down menu and then click Join the List and sign up from there. So blueoceanfaith.org, click Connect, and then Join the List. All right, here we go with On Christian Mindfulness. If you're a regular listener, you've almost certainly found value in contemplative spirituality, and most likely in Christianity as well. That's certainly my story. And in the last few months, I've had real encouragement from mindfulness in particular, from cultivating curiosity about each moment as best as I can, often by following my breath. I found that the things that customarily stress me out are things I can just get curious about. Now, this is not rocket science to any of us here, again, but evidently it took me a few years for it to sink in, at least to this degree, or so I found. My anxious moments, as a result, recently seem to last less long as I notice them with curiosity, but I don't resist them. My savoring of my days has gone up like 20%. And on the Christian front, my trust that God is working out the things that are just perplexing me has risen. And so I found myself hunting down another path at integrating thoughts in the Bible with these insights about mindfulness. And I thought I'd pass on some of what's been striking me on those fronts. I surveyed a few books written about mindfulness by Christians. There is actually more out there than you would think. And as I mentioned, I landed on one that I particularly enjoyed called The Mindful Christian, Cultivating a Life of Intentionality, Openness, and Faith, again, by Irene Craigle. So she's a longtime Christian who had a patch of her life where she realized that for all the good things happening around her, her toolbox for her own depression, both from her tools as a therapist and as a churchgoer, wasn't doing the job. As a therapist, she was familiar with mindfulness, but she, as a Christian, she regarded it as Buddhist, but she explored it and found it profoundly helpful. In the book, she teaches basic mindfulness, which was a fun review, but what I most enjoyed was her considering the Bible in light of these things, where I found her very insightful and helpful. Here are some of her perspectives along those lines that I most enjoyed, and a number of people in our online groups immediately when I talked about it there 
bought her book after we talked about some of the stuff. And some would then report their experience of ordering it, receiving it, and reading it all before the next week's group. So just a little plug there. So I will offer some like captions, some like subjects that I would characterize some of her remarks that are just mine and they're somewhat at random. And then I'll give her remarks and then I'll do a little commentary of my own for most of them. And that's what we're going to do. All right, here we go. So here are some of her initial ways into thinking about mindfulness and God. She writes, when we practice awareness of the present moment, we are practicing being with God who is always here, always stable. And I don't know if that's true about you. If you've been following this podcast and doing your best to try the contemplative thing, um, many of the people in our groups like it, but wonder, is it Christian? Now, my experience has been from the moment I got still and just tried to stay centered and note my breath and be still to the present moment, I was with God. That was never in question. It never even came up. I never even thought, gee, I wonder if I'm with God. It was just present to me. But for other people, things like centering prayer, where you use a so-called sacred word to kind of help anchor you in the experience, were really helpful to make sure you know it's overtly about God. But just to say, Dr. Craigle says, um, once we are aware in the present moment, we are with God because God's always there. And that was certainly my experience. And then she has this definition of mindfulness, which I just thought was terrific. Mindfulness is simply being aware of what is happening right now without wishing it were different, enjoying the pleasant without holding on when it changes, which it will, being with the unpleasant without fearing it will always be this way, which it won't. Mindfulness means paying attention to what is happening right now with kindness and curiosity paying attention in a way that helps you live a happier life. So that opener, that it's something being aware of what's happening right now without wishing it were different, that's so key. And we'll get into that in more depth with her remarks as we continue. But with the stresses I was in, if I'm feeling the stress, the last thing I want to be is in the present moment because I feel stressed and I'm afraid if I'm in the present moment too much, the stresses will just be more intensified and that's something I'm trying to get out of. And so it seems counterintuitive. And without wishing it were different. Well, definitely the reason I'm doing the mindfulness stuff is I want it to be different. So we're we're in a paradox here. But she's exactly right. That is the paradox. Mindfulness is being aware of what's happening right now without wishing it were different and, uh, and going from there. Uh, then she talks about God's encouragement to notice our thoughts without fusion or judgment. Now, fusion's a term that I'm carrying over from a podcast a few podcasts back about this therapy called ACT, A-C-T, um, that talks about Fusion is when we have a thought and then we think the thought fuses with our reality. So let's say our thought's a negative thought like, nobody likes me. A fusion of that would be, we think nobody likes me. And what that means is nobody likes me. They're they're the same thing. Or we feel like a wave of misery coming over us, which sometimes happens for me. And the fusion could be, oh, I feel misery. And the fusion is, I am miserable. My existence is miserable. And the whole premise of this act thing is those are separate events. The thought is just the thought. It doesn't necessarily have anything to do with reality. And she has some fascinating things right now to say about God's encouraging us not to fuse. She writes, Christian mindfulness empowers us to know our thoughts so that we can present them to God for renewal. Because of this, Scripture invites us to, quote, take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. I love her use of that, 2 Corinthians 10.5. That taking captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ means that Paul is saying our thoughts are different than us. That's how we can take them captive, that there's us and there's them. And we need to, to help them, to help our thoughts be kind of like Jesus-like. And if we don't do that, if we don't regard our thoughts as separate from us, we're not being what Paul says we need to do. So anyway, because of the scripture invites us to take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. 
and, quote, watch your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life, says Proverbs 4. So we have a heart, and we need to pay attention diligently to it, because it's either going to take us somewhere good or somewhere bad, says Proverbs. This is how we can hope to be, quote, transformed by the renewal of your minds. That's Romans 12, too. Um, so Paul commands us, renew how you think. That is where transformation is going to come. And Dr. Craig will say, mindfulness is pretty helpful in exactly that. It kind of makes that point overtly in a way that she hadn't found, I, I don't think, quite in the same way. And I certainly hadn't. As to why we shouldn't take our thoughts too seriously, she points out that Isaiah 55 has God telling us, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. So again, that's fusion, right? If we think nobody likes me, and what that means is nobody likes me, that we are fused, God is saying, according to Isaiah 55, you know, the things I'm thinking aren't the things you're thinking. So regard those things as just thoughts and do stuff with them, which is the whole mindfulness gig. She talks about on why, uh, on how mindfulness uniquely opens us to God's transformation. And she says this, no amount of logic can resolve questions like, why did this happen to me or what's wrong with me? Through the practice of mindfulness, we move away from trying to figure it all out logically. We open ourselves to an experience of God's presence. This disengages us from attachments to our own perceptions, that fusion thing, creating space for God to do the work of restoration, transformation, and healing. And it's so helpful. I think when I was reflecting back on What's been so useful in a kind of recent flow for, of mindfulness for me? And it's that. It's just the idea that, you know, I'm sitting down. I've had a lovely day, uh, perfectly pleasant. I've done things I really enjoy and I'm interested in. I'm watching a TV show with my beloved wife and uh, couldn't be, the show's good. And, you know, what a great end to it, a pleasant day. And suddenly, because I guess I'm the sort of crazy person this happens to, I will just, a thought will float in or a feeling of dread will just be there and out of nowhere. Now, in the past, what that would have meant for me was, oh my gosh, one, I have to fight it. Why am I feeling this? This is ridiculous. I had a perfectly good day. I'm having a good, good time with the woman I love. I'm watching, you know, TV. That's fun. And, um, and why am I feeling dread? And so I would try to argue myself out of it or try to just distract myself from it or shove it away. Or alternatively, I'd fuse a little bit with it. And I would think, okay, where's the dread coming from? What's it pointing to? Oh my gosh, there's probably something really wrong with my life that's just that's floating into my consciousness now. And what is it? Because I want to make it right so I don't have to feel this way. All that is not mindfulness. And what I think I've learned from the sorts of things we just talked about is it happens now. I'm sitting, I'm watching TV. I've had a perfectly good day. A wave of dread floats over me. I focus on my breathing. That's the classic contemplative thing to do. I note the breath coming into my nostrils and out of my nostrils. I just I just breathe. And I, to, uh, something to pay attention to. And I'm still watching the TV show and I seem to be able to concentrate on everything at once. And then I just try to say, well, what am I, what am I noting in my consciousness? Like, what am I, it's it's out there. I'm behind a waterfall of thoughts and emotions. What's going down the waterfall? Um, okay, I guess it's dread. Then I I welcome it or I greet it. I'll say something like, well, welcome dread. I see you. Got it. Sometimes then I'll ask myself, where do I feel it in my body? That's often things like act, talk about that. I think, well, how do I know it's dread? Like, how can I prove it in my body? I think, okay, what am I feeling? I'm feeling a little bit of pressure in my chest on the left side. And that's, I'm associating that with dread. And then I'll say, okay, well, welcome, a little bit of pressure in my chest on the left side that I'm associating with dread. And uh, I'll welcome it. And then that's really all I'll do. I'll just notice it. I'll keep watching the show and then I'll forget about it. And often it will just be gone the next time I'm aware of what's in my consciousness. 
And sometimes it's still there, but I've just sort of forgotten about it. I'm just sort of doing whatever. And I think her point that that gives God the ability then to do the work of restoration, transformation, and healing is really true. Because what that helps me do in that moment is recognize, of course, I have plenty of uncertainties in my life. If I want to attach the dread to something, no problem. I can find things that I'm, I, I wonder about. I don't know how they're going to work out that I'm, I have questions about. But what it does for me to do this mindfulness thing is it just lets it go and lets me be now where I am now, which forces trust that maybe God's out there, as I said in an earlier podcast, like building a lovely house for me, that I'm not there seeing it happen. It's That's called my future. And God's on it. He's busy working. But um, but for the moment, I can trust God to do the transformation. All right. Anyway, she talks about why paying attention to our breath is so helpful. And here are some just killer scriptures. She says, God used breath to create life, changing the first man from a pile of dust into a living human in Genesis 2. Jesus used breath to impart the Holy Spirit to the disciples in John 20. And scripture itself is God breathes, we're told in 2 Timothy 3. When we tune into our breath, paying attention to the physical sensations of breathing, we are tuning into the life-giving force of God. For every moment of life, God is providing breath and doing new things. So, as I said, you know, this hypothetical example, and I'm watching TV and this kind of wave of dread floats into my consciousness, and when I'm doing better, rather than fighting it or trying to follow it to, you know, to why I'm feeling the dread, I just notice that I'm breathing. That's this. I notice the breath going into and out of my nostrils. Now, what these scriptures seem to say is, that's how God creates stuff. That's how God created people. That's how Jesus filled us with the Holy Spirit. That's even how the Bible got created, through breath. And where that takes me is it's like, wow, and this comes up later in some of the mindfulness and Christian teaching, as we breathe, every breath is a new creation, you could argue, right? Because if we quit breathing, we're dead. So God is breathing into us with every single breath we take. That's God coming in with the Holy Spirit, with creation, with recreating this moment, with recreating this opportunity. That I've focused on more and more recently with great uh, helpfulness. She says that in the Bible, the good stuff God brings often comes by way of basic awareness. So if we look at Bible stories, is this mindfulness thing there in the Bible? And she points out some examples, and here's one. God asks only for Elijah. Now, you remember the story of Elijah. Elijah is this prophet in the uh, in the so-called, uh, in, I guess it's, was it in Kings? That's right, Kings. I've, I've preached on this before, um, in the Old Testament. And bad guys are chasing Elijah. And Elijah's freaked out and a little bitter towards God and just wondering how this came to this point. And he shows up in this cave as he tries to figure this out. So when that happens, God asks only for Elijah to show up at the entrance to the cave and practice basic awareness. He asks, what are you doing here, Elijah? Christian mindfulness is showing up where God is in the present moment and paying attention. That's what God asks Elijah to do, and that changes everything. All right, mindfulness. She also points out famous people tracked with this, like the Jesuits. So you'll recall Ignatius of Loyola back in the day, in the Middle Ages, um, came up with this whole new way of thinking about things with spiritual exercises, etc., and uh, here's what we're told. At the core of his theology, Ignatius affirmed, quote, God in all things. He taught that by paying attention to every part of life, we have the opportunity to find God. Ignatius also taught the practice of, quote, indifference, training the mind to let go of attachments to things, thoughts, and outcomes. So in my circle, we've had waves of paying a lot of attention to uh, Jesuit teaching and Jesuit spirituality. And this indifference thing, it's what a fascinating way to think about it, that Indifference just means, I think, getting behind the waterfall. It means of our thoughts and emotions. It means 
we are, it can go wherever it's going to go. We're just going to be present right now because God is in all things here. And then we'll see where things go. And we are not attached to outcomes having to work out certain ways. We'll find out what happens when we get there. Here is Dr. Craigle's testimonial about what mindfulness does for her. She says, mindfulness gives me the opportunity to sit at Jesus' feet and saturate my senses with God's goodness. Before mindfulness, I had little interest in paying attention to the present moment because I didn't believe I would find anything there other than pain, emptiness, and boredom. And I can relate, right? If I'm feeling all this stress, mindfulness is the last thing I want because I don't want to just like be present to how bad I feel. That seems ridiculous. And that seems like she can relate to that. But as she did, I have found it's just the opposite. So she then quotes the most famous Christian contemplative, I think, of the second half of the 20th century, Thomas Merton. And uh, he wrote, I'm no longer involved in the measurement of life, but in the living of it. I'm no longer involved in the measurement of life, but in the living of it. Meaning I'm not assessing every moment. Is this getting me closer to my goals? Is this, uh, is this a good moment versus a bad moment? How happy am I really? Those things, I'm not measuring things anymore. I'm just living. That's a mindfulness thing. She talks about what this thing called loving kindness meditation offers us. We talked that on earl- about that on earlier podcasts. It's a meditation practice, which is quite similar to the Christian practice of intercession, of praying for others. So it's only got a very small little difference, which is easily uh, fused if you want to just make it one and the same. But loving kindness meditation is where you think about a you know, small number of adjectives that you want for yourself. So what do I want for myself today? I, I guess I want to feel safe. I want to feel connected to God and I want to feel connected to others. And I want to feel purposeful, safe, connected to God, connected to others and purposeful. That's what I want for myself. And so in loving kindness meditation, you kind of wish that in a meditation time for yourself or in intercession, just pray that for yourself. So God, I pray that I would be safe, connected to you, connected to others and purposeful. Well, that's what you want. Great. Then you pray it for someone who you love, who you have only positive feelings for. So, or you, or you meditate on it for someone that you only feel positive things for. So I mentioned my wife. So great. I could say, well, may grace be uh, safe and connected to you and connected uh, to others and purposeful. And then you do the same thing for someone you're sort of indifferent towards. So it could be like a, uh, you know, somebody who's serving you kindly in a, in a service setting. You don't, know them particularly well, but you're, you're, you're extending this to them and you meditate on this for them or pray this for them. And then you extend it to someone you feel a more mixed about. And then you extend it towards people that you're actively, you don't like, or they've been mean to you. And then you extend it to maybe public figures who actually actively don't like, then you extend it to the whole world. And the premise of this is that good things happen. I'll tell you about that in a minute. But she says, is that in the Bible? Well, she says, well, it's the Bible one pretty key place in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus commands us, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Is that not that far from loving kindness meditation? What's the benefit right now of being present in that way to our enemies regularly? I think the benefit is it releases them to God. It doesn't mean you don't take action, of course. Uh, a friend in a one of our small groups even recently was saying, oh, as I've said this stuff, there's all this discussion in the literature and in the conversation about how this sort of centered uh, mindful contemplativeness um, gives you this thing called equanimity. And it doesn't necessarily mean you don't take action, but you have to have equanimity before you can take action because with it, you can then choose skillfully what you're going to do. And so it doesn't mean you don't do things. It means you don't do it from reactivity. I hate that person. Therefore, I'm going to fight that person. This is, you get still and then you, you choose. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. She has one Bible take on the value of the present moment, 
famous one, Psalm 118, that was a song back in the day that I remember singing when I first started doing the Jesus thing. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, says Psalm 118. I think before when I was singing it, I thought the emphasis was on me, like, come on, buddy, be happier, rejoice more. I know you got all these problems, but do more rejoicing, doggone it. This, the focus would be on the this, that this is the day. So in other words, just be present to this day. And in being here, rejoicing and being glad in it is being there, being curious about it, being present to it, trusting that it's enough. That's a kind of a different take, but I love it. This is the day the Lord has made. She talks about how mindfulness empowers us to accept our limitations. So she says, here's where our belief in God's goodness is illuminated. To practice mindfulness within a Christian framework, we do not need to like our limits or approve of them. We do not need to appreciate them, grow through them, or find a silver lining. We do not need to use positive thinking or expect a miracle cure or even feel hopeful, which is powerful, right? Because, you know, things like The Secret back in the day or Norman Vincent Peale would say we need to think positively. But I think the, the limitation that's come up repeatedly in response to that is we can't force ourselves to think anything. And so saying, doggone it, think positively. No, you're thinking negatively again. Don't think negatively, think positively. It actually draws us to thinking negatively because now our, we're focused on having to do something. The whole premise of mindfulness is we don't need this moment to be anything other than what it is. We don't need to think different things about God. We don't need to think about different things about the moment. We just need to be in the moment and see what happens next, which means we're limited, but God is not limited. She talks about how mindfulness helps us do hard things the Bible teaches us we have to do, but that many of us have heard them in churches and thought, that sounds hard. So she says this, we are encouraged in scripture to cultivate self-control, a fruit of the spirit in Galatians chapter five. When we use mindfulness to observe and temper urges and behaviors, we are doing just that, cultivating self-control. So if you've ever run across the fruit of the spirit listing in Galatians chapter five, they're very pleasant things. As if, if we know God, we'll become, we'll get love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And that sounds good. And we kind of think, oh, I want to be, uh, that sounds good. I want to be those things. And so we sort of take them as marching orders, but which is not the spirit of it, I don't think, and certainly would not be the mindful spirit of it. It's supposed to be something that as we say still to God in this moment, it happens. But she points out self-control is the one that's always the hardest. It seems different than the others. We come to that one, or I've often felt, you come to that one, you think, doggone it, be more self-controlled. All the things I shouldn't be doing that I'm doing, I'm eating too much, or I'm not exercising enough, or I'm you know angry, or whatever it is. Quit doing that, be more self-controlled. But that just doesn't seem to get us very far, and then we just feel failure. Mindfulness helps us be present in the sort of way that when urges come up, we just notice them. We just see them. We just watch them for a bit, and that helps us practice self-control. Who knew? She says, mindfulness has radically transformed my ability to pray. When combined with an awareness of God's presence, mindfulness is prayer. It's abiding in the present moment where God is with intention to listen, observe, cultivate awe, and receive. Perhaps to pray without ceasing, as Paul commands in 1 Thessalonians 5, means this ongoing awareness of the divine work throughout each day. Beautiful. Uh, I thought a lot about praying without ceasing, and I've done Brother Lawrence maneuvers, which both include mindfulness, which I hadn't seen the first time I went through Brother Lawrence's work uh, from, what, the 1600s? I kind of trying to remember when he was he was writing. But um, 1800s, somewhere around there. Um, but he also talks about a continual conversation with God. Very helpful, and I still find that helpful. But a great deal of my day with God increasingly, I, I do some conversation with God, but I do a whole lot of presence with God, curiosity about the moment with God. 
That seems like a whole, like an easier way to go. She says, prayerful mindfulness is staying present with Jesus. The night before his death in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus asked his disciples to remain here and stay awake with me. Of course, they fell asleep, famously. And you think, as a reader, they fell asleep probably because it was overwhelming. It was so painful. It was like they can't, their consciousness couldn't handle it. They kind of shut down. So why would Jesus say, stay awake in that kind of pain? Well, mindfulness is the way to do it. Follow your breathing for a bit. Just be present to it. See what happens next. And uh, again, on the subject of how, the, how mindfulness helps us do things, uh, hard things the Bible wants us to do, she says, the stage for gratitude is set by curiosity, a key component of mindful awareness. Curiosity is harder when we think nothing is new anymore. We'll talk about that more in a minute. So another hard thing to do is just be grateful. Curiosity, moment by moment, helps us be grateful. She talks about how mindfulness empowers godly contentment. Uh, she writes, both scripture and scientific research confirm that, in fact, a very small percentage of our happiness has to do with circumstance. Uh, sometime back, uh, we did a podcast here on what, the 12 happiness practices? It was from the same research that she's citing. Uh, according to a meta-analysis of studies on happiness, circumstances account for only 10% of the variability in happiness levels between people. And then she quotes uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, in a way I'd never thought of in this sense. 2 Corinthians 12, Therefore I'm content, says Paul, with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. What this would be saying is that Paul is saying, I understand that even hard circumstances and weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, those are hard circumstances. That's about 10% of my happiness level. So I have other choices. I can be content with Jesus in those things. And I think I can find some pretty powerful stuff as a result. Interesting take. She says, within a Christian framework, releasing resistance to the present moment is an acknowledgement that we are not God. To welcome the present moment exactly as it is equates to giving up our insistence about how life should be and becoming aware of God's divine provision. So there you go. That's how it helps us be content. She then on the same subject says, it turns out that abundant life is not achieved through striving, through avoiding, resisting, or even changing what's present. It's achieved through opening ourselves up to God's existing abundance in the moment. In this way, mindfulness is the practice of contentment, Andrew was able to see the little bit of food that was there in the moment and present that to Jesus. And just to pause here, what a wonderful use of a Bible story. So famous story, she's referring to the famous story of the loaves and the fishes, where Jesus and his disciples are out in the wilderness with all these people who want to hear his teaching. And they do hear his teaching, but then the disciples realize, oh, we've gone on a bit long, and now they're not going to be able to get back to find food to feed themselves. And so we should probably feed them, but it's overwhelming. We don't have enough food. There's all these people here. Oh no, you know, there's the striving, there's the the fear, there's this, there's the strain, there's the sense we're gonna fail, there's the sense we don't have enough. Andrew, in this story, one of the disciples, is the mindful one. On this view of it, Andrew just gets still and curious about the present moment. Gee, I wonder what this moment is offering, not what we have to do, but what, what's here. It's like, oh, well, I guess what this moment's offering is this one fish. I don't know. Here you go, God. What's up with the one fish? And that is, it turns out, enough. The present moment has enough in surprising ways we wouldn't expect. She says, miracles often happen this way. Mindfulness practices, both formal and informal, open us up to the miracle, providing raw material for God's miraculous work. She uses a big New Testament theme of resurrection, and she says mindfulness actually leans into that, to resurrection. And here's how she says, God does not always take away our suffering, our unpleasant emotions, our despair, or our fear. 
So my saying, oh, I got this little waft of misery or dread floating over into my consciousness when I'm having otherwise a very pleasant moment watching TV with Grace. And what I what I mentioned is, okay, here's what I'll do these days. I'll, I'm quicker to notice it. I'll follow my breathing. Uh, I'll just note that I'm breathing through my nose and I'll be still to that breathing for a bit. And then I'll just name whatever I'm feeling and welcome it just fine and maybe notice where I'm feeling it physically and then sort of just forget about it. Um, and what I discover, I've said from that is, some percent of the time, significant, it, it dissipates. And next time I'm kind of checking in, I think, oh, whatever was going on with that, it's gone. And on occasion, it's still there. It does not necessarily change it, but I, it changes my relationship to it. It doesn't trouble me that it's there. It's just, well, that's what consciousness does. And so that's a very trivial example. There's obviously much more suffering that's real and, and for real uh, that we experience. But her point is, God doesn't always take that away. Instead, God enters into those things and does resurrection work right there in the darkness. From a Christian perspective, mindfulness supports us in finding God within our terror and despair, rather than looking outside of them. That just strikes me as huge and scary, right? Because again, why was it that I wasn't hoping to be mindful back in the day with all the stresses I was feeling? Because it felt horrifying to just sit with those stresses. Because I had reasons. I, I didn't feel stressed from my point of view, for no reason. And so that just uh, makes me more aware and present of how scary the uncertainties of life are, and they felt for me at that time. And um, her point is, well, that's what resurrection's about, right? Is when, like, well, that's what happened with Jesus. Why does he tell the apostles, stay awake with me in just the horrors of the Garden of Gethsemane? It's because resurrection's coming. There's power in it, not just by dodging it, pushing it away, or, or thinking positively about it or whatever else we might be tempted to do. She talks about how mindfulness invites us into a kinder world. She writes, kindness towards the self does not always come easily. When we're the ones hurting, our internal dialogue can sound more like, get a grip, you're a mess. Most of us would rarely, if ever, talk that way to another human being. And then she talks about Colossians chapter 3, as God's chosen ones. Holy and beloved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. It's like we're, we're putting compassion and kindness on like a coat. She says, wearing compassion in this way, putting it on like clothing, implies that it is not only an outwardly expressed sentiment. So we discover that compassion towards ourselves is possible as we're just present to the moment. And then she says, maybe my favorite sentence she writes in the book is this, or two sentences. Self-compassion counters the lurking belief that life is hard because we are doing something wrong, that it is our fault we are struggling. It reminds us that we're having a hard time because life is hard, and it's okay to have a hard time doing something hard. It's powerful, right? Because I certainly could feel like if I'm struggling, where did I screw up? Well, mindfulness helps us realize, yeah, life's hard. And sometimes we struggle because that's the way life goes. And as we move towards uh, her final thoughts, she has a lengthy beat on something that I also found quite useful. She argues that the Bible teaches this thing called beginner's mind. Beginner's mind is most notably a Zen term, so it doesn't start from Christianity, and she notes that. But here's the idea of beginner's mind, which she uh, will probably explain it twice. I'll explain it, then I'll give her words. But beginner's mind is a, the idea, the meditating idea, that as we are still to each moment, we, each moment's new to us. We don't know what's about to happen. We are beginners. And the bad thing is to become an expert where we've been there, done that, we get it, we have the assessment, we know what to think about X, Y, or Z. And so, uh, to my mind, a very famous passage in the Bible about beginner's mind would be uh, John's Gospel, chapter 9, 
the story of the man born blind that Jesus heals, and then the religious leaders of the day get all upset because Jesus has healed this guy when he's not supposed to heal him, according to their theory, because it's the Sabbath day, we're not supposed to work, and I guess healing, to their mind, is work. And so that means Jesus is a sinner, so they, they, they figured it all out. Jesus is a sinner, he's healing on the wrong time, and frankly, the man born blind probably deserves it himself. We'll talk about how the book of Job has a similar argument going on. And so they got that figured out as well. And Jesus says to them famously, well, guys, because you say that you see, you're blind. Because you're an expert, you know you don't know anything. Beginner's mind is the way we have curiosity. We're always alive and new and fresh to what the world's offering us. But it requires mindfulness. And so here's what she writes. Beginner's mind is the freedom to begin again, over and over, whenever needed. Employing beginner's mind, we can choose to see the present moment with fresh eyes, as if we had never seen it before, because as beginners, we haven't. St. Benedict, St. Benedict, as a little interjection, created the monastic movement, or there were other people that he took as, as role models for it, but he kind of wrote it all down. So St. Benedict is known for his saying, always we begin again. So she's arguing right at the core of Christian monasticism is beginner's mind. By the end of Job's story, again, you'll recall Job in the Old Testament is a story of a man who goes through just unimaginable suffering, loses family members, has tremendous health uh, problems, uh, and just you know has a, has a terrible, terrible, horrible experience of life, suffers tremendously. And his so-called friends throughout the book are playing the experts. Well, you're suffering, and we know why you're suffering. It's because you screwed up somewhere, and you sinned, and so you're getting what you deserve, and that doesn't feel true or helpful or loving or anything good, but they are experts. They've got it down. And ultimately, in the book of Job, he has an encounter directly with God, and God basically says, what the heck do you know? What the heck do they know? You have no idea what's going on. You're a beginner. Job just says, oh, wow. Rather than getting the answer, right, he expected that God would say, here's the true answer. Now you can become the expert on why you're suffering. But God does not offer him expert status. God offers him beginner status. You don't know. And that's good news. And so it's strange why you could argue from a contemplative point of view, Job's embrace of that, settling into the fact of curiosity of each moment, he doesn't know. He's just open to what is new. That then all, that completely restores life to him in a way that's overflowing, beginner's mind itself. She writes, by the end of Job's story, what restores him is his return to the not knowing posture of a beginner. The book of Job is a testament to the power of humility, silence, and observation in the midst of suffering, to the power of beginner's mind. Beginner's mind, from a Christian perspective, is not only an acknowledgement that God has done awesome things in the past but also mindfully seeing what God is doing new in every single moment of our lives. I am about to do a new thing, says God through the prophet Isaiah. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? It's Isaiah 43. And again, in Revelation, God says, Revelation 21, God says, behold, I'm making all things new. So a theme in the Bible is every single moment is a new creation. Every breath we take is God creating us, bringing us to life with the power, the Holy Spirit giving us uh, life. Every moment is the Holy Spirit doing a new creation. Are we seeing it? That's mindfulness. Are we right here, right now, paying attention to the news, says Dr. Craigle. Uh, she talks about how mindfulness empowers the possibility of happiness. Cultivating happiness, she writes, is hard for many of us because it means dropping resistance to unhappiness. So, right, it's the idea of like, I feel all the stress. I don't want to be mindful of the stress because then I have to just, just be present to it. I'm, 
I, I, instead I should resist the unhappiness. I should resist the stress because it's so terrible. I should, you know, try to shove it down or try to explain it so I don't have to feel it anymore. That's all resistance. She says that's actually counterintuitively not a good strategy to becoming happy. She writes again, cultivating happiness is hard for many of us because it means dropping resistance to unhappiness. It means accepting unpleasant emotion, leaning in and opening up to it. It even means welcoming that unpleasant emotion exactly as it is. So I'm watching TV with Grace. I feel a wave of dread and I say, welcome, dread. Here I spent my whole life, she writes, working so hard at trying to stop being depressed and suddenly I was just supposed to accept it. Of course, the answer she comes to is not necessarily accept it because accepting it might be fusing with it. I am just a depressed person. Not that, I suspect, but not being resistant to whatever she's feeling or, or noting or thinking just noting it, getting behind that waterfall and being aware of your that the thoughts are not necessarily you, but they're there and welcoming them on their own terms. And she closes with a paraphrase of a very famous prayer from the followers of St. Patrick called the Breastplate of St. Patrick. And she closes by paraphrasing the most important or the most famous part of it as kind of a classic of mindfulness, which is God beneath you, God in front of you, God behind you, God above you, God within you. God is everywhere. If we're present at this moment, we are saturated with God. All right, that's it for this episode of The Pocket Contemplative. I hope you've enjoyed this little tour through these insights from The Mindful Christian. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again soon. <laughs>